if the Fed does hike rates seven or eight times in 2022, the economy will plunge into a recession. Mm -hmm. The stock market will crash by more than 20%, and it will be a very ugly two or three years. Welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, please be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, what's up? How you doing, Aaron? It's good to be here. Uh, big game this Sunday. Definitely a bunch of ads going on. A lot of crypto ads, a lot of EV ads. I know we're going to get into it, but yep. any of them that stood out to you as far as uh, things that you enjoyed watching? Uh, cryptocurrencies, electric vehicles, sports betting. Those are the three ads that dominated uh super bowl sunday and it was it was pretty amazing you know to see all these emerging technologies uh come mainstream with super bowl advertising it's the first time ever so yeah i think it was a really bullish bullish day for hyper growth tech stocks for emerging technologies for those sectors really really and the game was fantastic i mean i'm not <laughs> I, I, I actually had food poisoning so i missed it but i caught up on the ads yeah i had i was i was in a bad way but, oh man! See, I thought the Rams were done for when Odell went <laughs> down, but this Cooper man, this Cooper guy, he's he's a stud. He's a superstar. Well, if you're joining us for the first time, Hypergrowth Investing is a weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, electric vehicles, cryptocurrencies, the metaverse, and more. Nothing is off limits. We go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, and Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get Hypergrowth Investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator and lifelong learner. And Luke, it's sad we're not still in the studio. Uh, but fortunately, you know, our audio listeners, they're not affected either way. But again, hopefully we can get together soon. Oh, Aaron, I miss you too. <laughs> All right, let's let's dive in again. Uh, jumping back into some of the ads that that we saw. It was definitely like you said, it's bullish for almost the future. Um, kind of again, the the what the big ads that I saw were the the crypto ads, you know, the Coinbase ad obviously had, has a lot of news, a lot of hype, but the mm -hmm. LeBron ad, you know, uh, was pretty cool. Talk to me a little bit about what it means for these, you know, crypto ads having such a prominent presence in the Super Bowl. Yeah. Well, advertisements, companies have advertised forever and ever and ever because it has worked forever and ever and ever. Case in point, the LeBron James ad for, for crypto.com, I'm biased because I am a basketball fan, I am a Lakers fan, and I have been a lifelong LeBron fan. So I am 100% biased here. But throughout the holiday season, throughout December, uh, LeBron did an advertisement campaign with Tonal, the at-home fitness uh, machine. And that ad prompted me to go to my local Nordstrom and try out the Tonal and promptly buy the Tonal. And did you buy it that day from Nordstrom? Uh, the day I tried it out, yes. I went with my wife and my baby <laughs> and we went to the store and we tried it out and yeah, we bought it. We bought it that very day. Now, granted, we've done a lot of homework on it, mm -hmm. uh, but for me, really, for me, and this is this sounds totally crazy, but it's, it's how the consumer mindset works. For me, it was like, here's LeBron James, the greatest athlete in the world, who's 37 years old, I think, and is still dominating the NBA. Um, if that man 
is using this machine or endorsing this machine. He may not even use it. The fact that he chose to endorse this machine says something because he could have endorsed any number of at-home fitness products. He chose this one. For me, that was a huge vote of confidence from the person who knows probably the most about working out, staying in shape, keeping your body healthy uh, in the world today. So I was like, yeah, if he's endorsing it, I like the demonstration I got. Why not buy the tonal? So we bought the tonal, and thanks to the wonderful supply chain headaches uh, hitting the world, uh, <laughs> it will arrive this Friday. So we had this Friday, wait. okay. We had to wait six weeks. But having said all that, the point here is that celebrity endorsements can really thrust a brand into the spotlight, can really make it go mainstream. A big reason we had to wait six weeks for our tonal is because there's so much demand for the machines. Mm -hmm. So, and that is largely to do with the LeBron ad. When I went into the Nordstrom and was with the instructor who was showing me the, the machine and how to use it, he asked, obviously, you know, how did you hear about us? And I was like, well, <laughs> I saw the LeBron James ad. And he's like, that's what everybody says. <laughs> so that's just the consumer mindset. Mm -hmm. Now LeBron James had the crypto.com ad on Super Bowl Sunday. That's big. That's big for the exact same reasons LeBron ad with Tonal was big in December and November. It forces people to reset their expectations on something they may or may not have heard about and really consider it as something that is here to stay, something that is useful, something that is value additive and something that maybe they should use. So I think that it was a huge Sunday for cryptos. It was a huge Sunday for electric vehicles. Seven different car brands ran eight different auto advertisements. Of those eight auto ads, six of them were exclusive to electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. So 75% of auto advertising budget, auto advertising dollars on Super Bowl Sunday went to electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. You know, that's that's wild. When you consider that only about 9% of electric of, of new cars sold in 2021 were electric vehicles, yet auto companies put 75% of their ad budgets on Super Bowl Sunday 2022 to electric vehicles. That delta, 9% to 75%, shows you the opportunity in this industry over the next few years. EVs are going to boom and boom and boom and boom and boom. So that was huge for them. And then sports betting had a few ads in there that um, uh, I found to be very interesting and I think are a harbinger. Or not a harbinger. It's a bad thing. They are a good uh, sign of things to come for the sports betting industry as legalization tailwinds make their way throughout um, the country. Go, going back to the to the EV ads real quick, um, the one of the things I know I, I've watched a bunch of them, and the, uh, obviously the the big one that kind of stood out was the Austin Powers one. We have Mike Myers returning to a classic role, um, and as entertaining as that entire uh, commercial was, uh, the thing that kind of caught my mind as I'm watching it, and I'm thinking about Luke in the back of my head as I'm watching. Oh, it's another EV thing. You know, what's, what do I oh, need to, about to pay EV ad. Great. Yeah. What, what am I paying attention? The thing that, the thing that kind of jumped out at me was that, you know, towards the end of the, of the, the commercial, there was a little thing at the very bottom that for the general motors that said 30 EVs globally by 2025. Yeah. It was this little, like, if you, you know, catch, miss it if you don't catch it. And, but I think that again, says something about the future of the automotive industry, which you've been talking for, for since we've, before we started this podcast and does is that does that indicate that these bigger names 
understand this shift is happening, whether they're on board or not. They do understand it's happening and they are all on board. Mm -hmm. There is not a single automaker in the world left that has not fully embraced the electric vehicle revolution. Again, 75% of auto ad dollars were allocated towards electric vehicle exclusive ads on Super Bowl Sunday. Um, that, you know, that data says it all. Every legacy auto brand is fully embracing the electric vehicle revolution. 2022 will be the year that all those legacy auto brands for a lot of them for the first time ever debut dozens of new electric vehicle models. They're electrifying their fleets. Mm -hmm. It will also be the year that Lucid, Rivian, Canoe, Arrival, a bunch of other startups come into the space with their new cars. It'll be the year that Tesla rapidly expands production in Europe, rapidly expands production in China. So there are a lot of tailwinds here that are all kind of lining up together to really accelerate the electric vehicle revolution in 2022. There are aggressive estimates out there for how quickly the industry is going to grow in 2023. That was my, that was my next question. What was the consumer response going to be? In yeah, so 2022. consumers are, are going to buy these cars in bulk and another kind of underrated uh, driver here is actually the, Russo-Ukrainian conflict in Eastern Europe because mm -hmm. that's driving oil prices sky high. And I don't know if you still drive a gas-powered car or not, but you go to the pump and you refuel and it's like, oh my goodness, how am I paying this much for gas? <laughs> if those prices continue to rise and a lot of energy analysts, a lot of energy experts, commodity experts think they will, if oil and natural gas prices continue to rise because of those conflicts, because of various other things going on throughout the world, then that is only going to serve as a further impetus for consumers to adopt EVs. You know, it's kind of like you have all these reasons to adopt them. Oh, now my favorite car is now electric. Maybe the Ford F-150 is electric or, you know, BMW X3 is electric. My favorite car is now electric. Okay, that's one reason. Oh, the costs are plummeting. You mean I can get that car for around the same price as the gas-powered car? Mm -hmm. well, that's a first. That's interesting. So that's the second reason, economics. Uh, third reason, well, oh my God, This the gas prices are insane. I, I can't afford to refuel my car like this every two or three weeks. It's insane. So then you got a third driver in there. So all of a sudden you have all of these drivers coming together. When you have a situation like that, you get broad-based consumer response because maybe you don't respond to the fact that the sticker price is cheaper, but you do respond to the fact that you don't want to pay so much in gas every you know two weeks or so. Or maybe you don't respond to the gas prices, but you do respond to the fact that, you know what, your favorite car, BMW X3, Ford F-150, whatever it is, is now electric. Who knows? Who knows what you're going to respond to? There are so many response triggers in the market now that most consumers, in our opinion, will shift to electric within the next two or three years. And that while the consensus growth estimates for the industry are very aggressive, we think the industry will continue to outperform expectations. This is going to be very rapid growth over the next 24 or 36 months. Uh Jumping, jumping back to cryptos real quick with the, again, like you said, the winners of the, the ad campaigns for the, right. for the big game were, were cryptos, EVs, and, and uh, online gambling. Um, yeah. But going back to cryptos real quick, and I think this kind of speaks to what you're talking about with the way that the ads were positioned for the Super Bowl is, you know, we, we're not seeing as many, you know, Bud Light and insurance 
commercials. We're seeing to your to your expertise, hyper growth trends in these ads. Um, yes. With when it comes to cryptos, it seems to be that there's this institutional adoption picking up. Uh, do you want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so one of the biggest drivers we believe of Bitcoin prices uh, in 2022 and 2023, and even Ethereum prices to an extent, um, is going to be institutional adoption of these cryptos on their balance sheet. So as opposed to holding cash on the balance sheet, these companies will now be holding Bitcoin or Ethereum. Uh, the accounting giant KPMG, I believe it was two weeks ago, added both Bitcoin and Ethereum to its balance sheet. So you're starting to see big companies invest in these assets and hold them on their balance sheet because they view them as better investments than just sitting on cash. Now, the reason for that is inflation is eating away the power of that cash on these companies' balance sheets. And investment opportunities elsewhere may not seem that compelling to them at this point in time. Mergers and acquisitions, well, a lot of companies are trading at you know, pretty, pretty rich valuations, especially in the private markets. And so an acquisition may not be the most worthwhile usage of that cash. Buybacks, well, you can definitely execute some buybacks. There's only so much you can do there. And if you believe your stock is personally overvalued, there's not a lot of insider buying going on right now, then a lot of corporations may not fuel up their buyback in that way. Uh, so then where do you put the cash? Well, you can put the cash into Bitcoin. You can put the cash into Ethereum. And it's really significant that KPMG chose Ethereum because it's been standard that companies that do add cryptos to the balance sheet have just been adding Bitcoin because it is just, it's the gold standard. It's the mothership. Uh, it's the stable one, the relatively stable one. But the fact that KPMG extended into Ethereum shows that that stability, this institutional adoption tailwind is now extending into the uh, into other cryptos, not named Bitcoin. And we think that shows broader acceptance of and adoption of the crypto universe, not just Bitcoin that has staying power, but Ethereum has staying power too. Maybe next we get Cardano, who knows? We the concept do, of cryptocurrency is being... Yes, more broadly accepted by large institutions. And so those companies have a lot of money. Mm -hmm. uh, if they pile into Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other cryptos over the next several years, that's going to add a lot of buying pressure into the market. And as goes Bitcoin, so goes the rest of the mm -hmm. crypto market. So go other altcoins. So that could be a huge upward tailwind for the entire market. Now, the other big buying pressure tailwind here is through sovereign wealth funds. Um, sovereign wealth funds are among the deepest pockets on the planet, if not the deepest pockets on the planet. Those funds hold very little cryptos today. Mm -hmm. If they decided to suddenly make a big move into cryptos, into Bitcoin, into Ethereum, that will add a ton of buying pressure. It will dwarf the buying pressure added by institutions. It will add a ton of buying pressure into the market. And that's how you can see a real rip your face off rally in cryptos over the next two to three years. But long story short, there is a lot of money out there that has yet to really jump into the crypto space that very much could jump into the crypto space. And then we're starting to see early signs of a trickle that if that trickle turns into a stream, that's how you get a massive crypto breakout in 2022, 2023. And we think that that is a very likely outcome. Got it. 
Uh, well, one of the one of the things that you're mentioning is that the cause for this institutional adoption is inflation, which I guess kind of brings us to our next point: the our weekly check in on what's going on with the Fed. Um, <laughs> there's there's talk of front loading, uh, which before we kind of go into like what's going on with that, can you explain to to our our listeners what is front loading and why is this something that we, we're talk even talking about right now? Yeah, so front-loading, it's not really a, a term that's used a lot. Uh, it's actually James Bullard, the St. Louis Fed president, voting member this year, uh, just came out and said we're going to front-load in the same way that you say you would front-load anything. So what he's talking about is the idea that the Fed should hike rates more rapidly and aggressively earlier in the cycle, front-load those rate hikes so that they can more – appropriately fight inflation trends. And that spooked market. So Bullard came out and said that in a Bloomberg interview last week that he believes the Fed should hike 50 basis points in March and that they should have 100 basis points in the bag by July. That means four rate hikes by July. In response to those comments, stocks sold off sharply. Treasury yields jumped and the futures market started pricing in the likelihood of six, seven or even eight rate hikes in 2022. That is absolutely nonsensical, absurd, and complete hocus pocus. The Fed, there is a 0% chance that the Fed hikes eight times this year. And there is a very, very, very low probability that the Fed hikes 50 basis points in March. So it's, it's, know, we're seeing a huge overreaction right now. It is a massive overreaction. To nothing. Massive overreaction. Mm-hmm. James Bullard came out and said those comments. And then within... 24 hours, multiple other Fed members came out and said, uh, yeah, I don't really agree with that. I, 50 basis points is not what I want to do in March. Uh, we should take this gradually and see how the economy reacts. That's the consensus belief on the Fed right now is go slowly, do a hike, see how the economy reacts, see how the stock market reacts, see how the yield curve reacts, because something you have to acknowledge here is the treasury yield curve has flattened Mm -hmm. dramatically over the past few months. Now, for context, what that means is that you have a treasury yield curve Mm -hmm. and the treasury yield curve plots the yields of different dated treasuries all the way from three months all the way to 30 years. Mm -hmm. And what we do as investors, as analysts, as market observers, is we watch the slope of that curve as a sign of where the economy may be headed. You want to see the curve slope up. You want to see longer dated treasuries have higher yields than shorter dated treasuries because that means that people are projecting positive economic growth in the future. Mm -hmm. But when this curve flattens, that's not good because the front of the curve goes up when people Mm -hmm. are expecting rate hikes and they're expecting monetary tightening and the back end of the curve goes lower when people are expecting an economic slowdown. Right now we're seeing two-year yields jump. Mm -hmm. We're going to 1.5-1.6% here because now the futures market is pricing in eight rate hikes in 2022 or seven Mm -hmm. rate hikes in 2022. The front end of the curve has gone up. Mm -hmm. The back end of the curve has gone up too, but not as quickly. So this has created a flattening of the curve. Mm-hmm. So we're at like one five, one six on twos, 
and we're like 192 on tens. So we're looking at a 40 basis point spread between tens and twos, which is very low mm-hmm. and much flatter than where we were a year ago. And when those now, when those when the difference between those numbers are small, it it ind- indicates not good things, right? Bad things. Yeah. Normally, before every uh, economic recession in the U.S. in the past 50 years, this yield curve has inverted. Mm-hmm. The 10s drop below the 2s. Okay. That's called the yield curve inversion. Okay. It is the bond market saying the economy is about to hit a really, really, really tough patch. Mm-hmm. Um, and the bond market has always been right. Every time this yield curve has inverted, the economy has gone into a recession over the next, I think it's like 12 to 24 months. W- within the foreseeable future, the economy... Uh, falls into a recession when this yield curve inverts. So what? So what? what we haven't what had current, inversion yet. Let's be clear. Yeah. We no. I, yeah. yeah. Uh, just going into the definitions of what we're talking about. So what does that look? What does that curve look like right now? Yeah. So we're at forty basis points. Okay. Um, which is a very narrow gap between tens and twos. Okay. Um, we have come down from 190, 80, 50, You know, it's it's come down pretty precipitously over the past few months, mm-hmm. uh, and that's the bond market saying that what is going on is the Fed is planning to hike rates into a slowing economy, okay. which is a recipe for triggering a recession. Mm-hmm. The bond market is scared about that. That's why the yield curve is flattened. Mm-hmm. Now, what you also have to understand here is when this yield curve flattens like this, when we get a flattening of the yield curve to ultra-flat levels, that has happened multiple times in history. Every time it has happened, it has preceded the Fed enacting accommodative monetary policy. Okay. Meaning normally after this flattening, the Fed cuts rates. Okay. Because they listen to the bond market, they see the bond market, they understand there's a slowdown happening, and there's no need to hike into a slowdown, so they cut into a slowdown to support the economy. But what's happening right now is completely unprecedented. We've had a super flattening to ultra-flat levels on the yield curve, Ahead of what the market is saying is going to be eight rate hikes in 2022. Yeah. That's absurd. That's unprecedented. If it does happen, if the Fed does hike rates seven or eight times in 2022, the economy will plunge into a recession. Mm -hmm. The stock market will crash by more than 20%, and it will be a very ugly two or three years. But that's... Like, but you said earlier that's the likelihood of that happening is very. The Fed's small. not dumb. The Fed's not dumb. Yeah. The Fed is not going to hike blindly into a slowing economy just to combat inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a very patient Fed. This is a very data-driven Fed. This is a very dovish Fed, mm-hmm. and this is a Fed that has a history of reacting to data and responding to that data in a accommodative manner. So when you look back at 2018, we were in a rate hike cycle, same Fed led by the same man, Jerome Powell. Mm -hmm. We were in a rate hiking cycle, but we had the U.S.-China trade war. We had Trump saying that the economy is not growing as hot as it can be because the Fed is hiking rates. So there was this rhetoric out that the Fed was doing the wrong thing, but the Fed didn't they didn't veer course, right? Uh They stayed the course and they were like, okay, we're going to keep hiking rates because The data hasn't really shown us a true slowdown yet. Mm -hmm. And the markets haven't destabilized. But in the fourth quarter, the markets destabilized. The S&P 500 dropped 20%. 
and the economic data started to slow meaningfully. So what happened? First quarter of 2019, Powell and company come out and boom, rate hikes stop and we go into a few rate cuts. And that powers an enormous market rebound in 2019 from what was a bear market in late 2018. I think we're going to get the same thing here. Mm -hmm. This Fed is looking at the data right now. Inflation is still hot. The economy appears to still be humming along. Labor looks good. So, of course, against the backdrop of that data, they're going to say, yeah, we're going to hike rates. Maybe we'll do 50 basis points. Maybe we'll do four in the bag by July. Maybe we'll have seven throughout the year. Of course, that makes sense for them to be saying those things. But there's a difference between talk and walk. Uh And when it comes to actually walking and hiking rates by May, Uh June, July, they're going to be looking at a substantially different data set. Inflation numbers are going to be way lower. Uh And as opposed to going this way up and to the right, they're going to be going down and to the right. They're going to get decelerating inflation. They're going to be looking at decelerating inflation and lower inflation by May, June, and July. They're going to be looking at an economy that is also slowing dramatically by May, June, and July because consumer spending is going to fall flat this year. We're already seeing signs of that consumer sentiment is at decade low levels that normally precedes a massive slowdown in retail sales and consumer spending. Consumer spending drives 70% of the U.S. economy. If they slow down, the economy slows down. So the Fed's going to be looking at slow inflation, lower inflation, and look at slow consumer spending, slow economy. And they might be looking at a labor market that is not that tight anymore. We're starting to see in in PMI readings and different manufacturing readings that labor is improving. People are the great resignment, the labor shortage is actually kind of ending. So that should put downward pressure on wages, which have been rising. So when the Fed looks at all that data in May, June and July, they're going to say, oh, maybe we don't need any more rate hikes Mm -hmm. or maybe we'll just do one more or two more. And so our base case is that when all is said and done by the end of 2022, we're going to be looking at a Fed funds rate, maybe 75 basis points, mm-hmm. maybe 100, meaning three or four rate hikes, not seven or eight. Mm-hmm. And that is the upside scenario that leads to a massive breakout in stocks in the second half of 2022. So we think that stocks continue to chop here uh, until the Fed goes dovish. And gotcha. we believe the Fed well turned dovish by summer. When they do turn dovish by summer, last time they went hawkish to dovish was early 2019. That preceded an enormous rally in stocks throughout 2019. We see the same thing happening here. We're going to get a hawkish to dovish pivot in the Fed in the summer. When that happens, you will likely get an enormous rally in stocks in the back half of 2022. That extends into 2023. So we view this period right now, between mm-hmm. now and summer, as the accumulation period. This is the time when you should be finding your favorite stocks mm-hmm. that are beaten up yep. and accumulate a little bit more of them every time they drop big, every time they have a 5% down day or a 10% down day, mm-hmm. down day accumulate a little more. Mm-hmm. Build your cost basis up, build your positions up so that you are fully loaded and ready for when that is dovish. So you, met, you mentioned some of the factors that go into, you know, the these rate hikes and what the, what the Fed is looking at, what some of the factors that happened that people were looking at in 2018, with some of the things that you we, and we talked about it earlier uh, in regards to to the EV market, but you know with some of the things that are going on right now today with the Ukraine Russia situation, does that have right. any impact on uh, the 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 state of the market moving forward? Uh, yeah, I mean it's it's largely a non-event, I would say. Um, okay. 
historically geopolitical events, geopolitical conflicts like what's going on over with Russia and Ukraine uh, do not have a large impact on the markets. Since 1950, there have been about 20 of these geopolitical events, notable geopolitical events. They have averaged a roughly 5% drawdown in the S&P 500 over about 20 days. Now, the S&P 500 since 1950 has averaged about 3 5% drawdowns a year. Mm. So historically speaking, geopolitical events like the Russia-Ukraine conflict are just run-of-the-mill sell-offs that create good buying opportunities. Okay. More. They don't last long. They're not big. And that's especially true when in that analysis, you know, we're including uh, the 9-11 attacks. We're including Pearl Harbor. Right. Those are on soil attacks, very different from what's going on right now. So if we're talking off soil, foreign geopolitical events, geopolitical conflicts, then the average becomes like a three percent drawdown. So really, really, really small in terms of in the big picture, not a not a big deal, pretty much a non-event. Now, the one thing that could be negative there, again, is the soaring oil prices that yeah. could be the byproduct of uh Russia invading the Ukraine and withholding supplies and supplies have to get shifted and you get rising prices. Now, we think that that is possible, that is likely, but we think that it will be transient. Um, there is enough supply to go around. We do believe the demand will slow also in 2022 and that the net effect on price will not be very big or last very long. And people start buying EVs. <laughs> and people start buying EVs. Investing yeah. in battery so, technology. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, I think uh, in terms of what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, I don't think it warrants much attention right now. Uh, the situation needs to be monitored, but it's not going to be a major driver of the markets. Another thing it may do, though, is it may cause the Fed to second think about going aggressive in that 50 basis point hike in March. Mm -hmm. If they're now hiking into a slowing economy and what is brewing uh, geopolitical conflicts in Eastern Europe, you know, that's not a great situation to be hiking rates aggressively into. So it could <laughs> cause them to second guess as well, in which case it's actually a net positive effect on the markets. So uh, taking a look at what is going on in some of the, in the markets right now, especially in your sector, hyper growth tech, we're seeing some short interest in small cap stocks. Uh, can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Um, yeah, so a lot of the consensus belief on Wall Street has been that Fed's going to hike rates and that yep. it's bad for long duration assets. And um, therefore, a lot of investors have turned to bet against long duration assets, hyper growth tech stocks, um, unprofitable tech stocks, disruptive tech stocks, anything that is based off of 2025 and 23 estimates. Um, that has created a crowded short trade against those names. When you get crowded short trades, you open yourself up for a short squeeze um, positions. That short squeeze needs a catalyst. That catalyst could be earnings. That catalyst could be the Fed going dovish. Either way, we think that if short interest remains elevated in hyper growth, destructive tech stocks over the next three to four months, it sets them up for an unusually uh, large rally in the back half of 2022. That when we get this broad stock market rebound, the leaders of that rally will so be the it's still, It's still not really, if you're in it for the long term. This isn't going to affect you really one way or the other unless well, you're paying yeah, attention. Yeah. The short interest, yeah, short interest doesn't matter long term. Short interest is, is a function of, of short term trading stuff. Yeah, uh, it can act as a catalyst for a big short term rally. It can add firepower to a short term rally. So if our base case does play out the way we expect it to, the Fed goes dovish, we get a massive stock market rebound in the back of 2022. Long duration assets get the most buying uh, uh, pressure in that rally. If things play out like that. 
than the heavily shorted hyper growth tech stocks, the ones that have a heavy short interest, a high short interest, those ones are going to have very big pops in the back mm. half of 2022. And you're kind of seeing that a little bit already this with earnings season um, mm. over the past two weeks. You've seen some pretty big moves in names like Snap and names like Pinterest. Those are names that had accelerating short interest into their reports. Mm. Um, they reported great numbers and that caused a lot of the shorts to cover, adding to the buying pressure. So, so we kind of already seen that happen. I think that a lot of the short interest will actually wane over the next few months. So mm -hmm. you won't get that huge pop in the back half of 2022 short covering rally. Um, I think that could actually happen here over the mm -hmm. next few months uh, because I think investors who got short those names are now second guessing their short positions um, in the face of what could be a dovish pivot from the Fed and in the face of what has been strong earnings from those companies. So when you see this trend happening, do you see opportunities? And if so, how do you identify those opportunities? Yeah, so short interest is definitely something we look at in terms of um, companies that we're looking to invest in or, or buy. But it's not a major factor. Um, it's just we view it more as like a catalyst driven factor, whereas we like to look at things long term, big picture, we're going to be holding these investments for many years. And to the point that you mentioned earlier, short interest is not really a function of the long term trajectory of the stock price. It's more a driver for near-term price movement. So we do consider it uh, in terms of accelerating rallies, but we don't view it as a make or break for any single stock. Gotcha. Well, I again, I think as, as we continue these conversations, I, I kind of understand a lot more about what you look for and kind of where we're going to be in the back half of this year moving forward. But there's still a lot of craziness kind of going on in the market from, you know, the the short sales to just a market that's some people are saying is a little unpredictable right now. Um, you know, so, you know, there's are you playing def Do people play defense? Do they play offense in this choppy market? I think one of the things that I'm curious about is, you know, what is it? that you need to look for? What are the factors that you need to look for when you're looking to invest into something? Is it profits? Is it low valuations? Is it cash? Like what, what are the things that you, that people should be looking for in doing the research again, that you do every day in these choppy markets? Yeah. So you got to play offense and defense. Every market strategy, successful market strategy requires a mix of both. Mm -hmm. Um, we think the thing to be doing right now is to play offense by finding some really washed out hyper growth tech stocks that have enormous long term potential, yet that potential is being dramatically undervalued by the market because of um, short sighted macroeconomic fears that could be resolved in the second half of 2022. And if they do get resolved, those stocks are going to be due for a massive rubber band like bounce back. So that's one element of a successful investment strategy today that we're implementing. Uh, the second is to play defense with more stable companies. Um, we're looking for cash flows. We're looking for profits. We're looking for relatively lower valuations. We're looking for strong management teams. We're looking for um, uh, good balance sheets, cash heavy balance sheets, debt free balance sheets. It's those types of names that should succeed here in the interim as the markets remain volatile, those higher quality, so to speak, fundamentally stronger companies. Those are certain metrics that I think investors should overweight in their analysis at this point in time because those will provide stability 
to what will likely be a pretty volatile market over the next few few months. And what, what is it, so? What does it mean when a company has a big cash balance? Um, so one thing you want to avoid right now is you want to avoid debt because interest rates are going up. They're not going to go up as much as we think they are, but they're still going to be going to go up, which means interest expenses are going to go up. And if you have a lot of debt, that's going to have a disproportionately large negative effect on your income, on your net profits, on your earnings. So you want to avoid debt cash heavy by cash heavy. We mean, we want a balance sheet. Now, when you look at it, cash is one of the biggest items on that balance sheet. Mm. Um, you want to have more cash than debt. You want to have a net cash positive positioning. Uh, you would like to cover upwards of 10% of your market cap in cash if you're a smaller company, because that gives you a nice little bellwether uh, to kind of withstand the current market storms um, and withstand what could be uh, substantially higher interest rates. So if your company is worth $10 million, you want to have $1 million in cash. That's we. That's our our threshold. We okay. like to see if you are small, more. <laughs> on the smaller side. Mm. This doesn't apply to the mega caps, um, yeah. Because obviously, if you're a trillion dollar company, you're not having a hundred billion dollars in the balance sheet. But yeah. um, when you're on the smaller side, you know anything below fifty billion, really, we want to see the cash balance on the balance sheet, the net cash positioning, be in excess of ten percent of your market cap. Yeah, that's something we're looking for. Got it. Cool. Uh, well, shifting gears a little bit, uh, one of the topics I think that we want to talk about today is, and I don't think we've really touched on it a little bit before, kind of your passion for, uh, the app, what's that app that you, for real estate that you love so much? Open door. Open door. I can't believe I just blanked on that, but yeah, we've touched on real estate before, but we haven't really touched on the housing bubble. Um, you know, we we're seeing that the what bubble, Aaron? What bubble? Okay, what bubble? All right, so what bubble? Is there a housing bubble right now? No. No. Okay. No. There's too much demand out there, man. Uh-huh. There's so much demand for homes. Like, it, what? Here, here's what happened. Okay. What happened is- What happened? Millennials, let's zoom out. Let's take the 400, 400 of you here. Okay. Millennials pushed back big life events- like getting married, like having kids, like buying a home. They pushed these events back for years and years and years. I remember reading stats in like 2017 and 2018 that a record number of people under the age of 35 are living at home with their parents. So you basically had all these people living rent-free at their parents or paying low rents in, in cities, whatever it may be, either or, saving up a bunch of money. Then they made a bunch of money during COVID because a lot of these folks went out and invested. A lot of folks went out and bought crypto successfully. I just read a study that apparently 9% of home buyers, which may seem like a low number, but it's, it's actually pretty high number. 9% of home buyers used money they made from a crypto investment as part of their down payment. So it's it's that's a real driver here. So you have all these people who saved them a bunch of money, made a bunch of money, that are now entering this age where it's like, get out of your mom's house. Like, get, you know, let's go buy a home. Let's get married. Let's let's do things. COVID hit. It made me realize that, you know, I need to go out and, and live my life and because anything can happen at any moment. So now you're having this huge demand impetus mm -hmm. from all these people that just put off home buying forever. 
So that is a massive demand surge that is sustainable, that is durable, that is not going anywhere anytime soon. Mm -hmm. And it's bolstered by the fact that interest rate payments, interest rates are really low. So when you finance your I, home- I had a friend who, who just bought a home for 0% interest. I So- and yeah, so exactly. So yes, at the dollar, the sticker price on the home is super expensive, but that's not what people care about. What they care about every month is their monthly payment. How much what's they're paying monthly, yep. What's coming, what's their bill on the home, not what the sticker price is. And if that bill is low, which it still is relatively low compared to incomes based on where we were in the 2000s, then that bolsters continued demand. So you have demand that is surging, that is going wild. Now let's talk about supply. Coming out of 08, there was no demand to buy a home. Mm. So home builders didn't build. And mm. for the next 10 years, you know, recessions, depressions, they leave scars. They leave mm. emotional scars on people. People were afraid to buy homes. They were afraid to buy homes at premiums. Mm -hmm. So home builders didn't build a lot of homes throughout the 2010s. What that has left us with is a massive supply and glut. And I, I've said on these calls before yep. that, some housing analysts out there believe that it's going to take a full 10 years of overbuilding just to get to supply demand equilibrium. So what you're left with right now is a huge supply shortage of homes, mm. a massive demand surge for those homes, big demand, low supply equals rising prices. That only breaks if demand goes lower or supply goes higher. Demand will likely inch lower as interest rates go up emphasis on the inch because yeah. there is a lot of demand that is ready to buy on the first dip and supply will likely inch up mm -hmm. emphasis on the inch because there is a supply chain crisis there is a labor shortage crisis these guys to build homes need a lot of supplies they need a lot of labor unless they're 3d printing homes which i think is the future but more on that later <laughs> but right now the housing market, huge demand, low supply, is going to remain in place for the foreseeable future. And that is going to create a situation where home prices are likely to continue to rise. No, they're not going to have a repeat of 2021. That okay. year was insane in terms of home prices. Absolutely mm -hmm. absurd. We're yeah. not going to grow at 10%, but we are going to grow at 3 to 5% per year going forward. That's just going to be the new norm. That's how this housing market's going to progress. And so for those folks that are saying we're in a bubble, I think that really misunderstands the fundamentals underlying the housing market, which is super strong demand, super low supply, and really affordable financing. None of those things are going anywhere. So the housing market's going to stay on very strong footing. I, I have a question about supply. And this is, I was watching a, a Vox uh, video the other day. They were talking about the idea of, you know, when it comes down to it, that uh, gentrification, the idea of gentrifying neighborhoods gets labeled with a bad rap. So you have these communities that aren't allowing the building of homes, which is also keeping supply down. Do you have any insights or takes on that? That sounds like a political issue, Aaron, and I don't delve into politics. All right, then. In that case, uh, we're going to move no, on from I, that question. I think that, I think that may be happening, uh, but I am not informed enough on that to speak on it. And if I'm not informed on something, I like to not speak on no, it. No, again, it was just something that, I, that caught my attention. And when we're talking about this, it's something that obviously plays a role 
I just wanted to know if you had a take on it, but if you don't, that's all good. But I know yeah, what you do. Nothing there. I, I, I think my, my big picture takeaway here is just that, hey, um, I know home prices are high. Uh, I, I see them. I follow yeah. them on Open Door, on Zillow, on Redfin. I see home prices going up and 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 up. And then I look at the past 30, 40 years, and they've also just gone up and 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 up with the exception of a few time periods. Uh, and those few time periods didn't correct lower because prices got too high. Mm-hmm. Bubbles don't don't pop because things get too high. Bubbles pop because something pops them. Yeah. Um, in 08, it was the fact that we were built on the back of just bad lending. Mm-hmm. We're not having bad lending today. Uh, yeah. Consumer balance sheets are strong. Interest payments are low. Uh, I just don't see what catalyst is going to come in here to break the back of what is a very strong housing market mm-hmm. um, granted a black swan risk could emerge at any point in time that's why they're called black swan risks <laughs> but you can't make your base case a black swan risk yeah um the base case here is that there is no catalyst that's going to pop the bubble pop the bull market and so housing prices will continue to rise for the foreseeable future and i think the biggest players in the space know that Mm-hmm. Open Door is raised a bunch of money to go on huge home buying sprees over the past few months. But I mean, that's I, another reason why, I, yeah, again, supply is down because investors are buying them up, right? Yeah, so there's a lot of institutional demand in there, right? Yeah. So BlackRock is coming in and they're just buying homes. Apparently, like 20% of the homes Open Door sells are to BlackRock. Okay. And they're not alone. There are a lot of massive Wall Street funds going into the housing market. So the big money here is piling in. They're not getting scared of it. They're embracing it. Um, Because they see an opportunity to buy a home and flip it to the rental market because that's where they can make a lot of money. Um, So any way you slice it, really, I think the housing market's on really strong footing. Um, I know I sound maybe like that. I remember there's one scene in The Big Short, right, where Michael Murray calls up the the big Wall Street guy and he's like, the housing market's on solid footing. What are you talking about? There's no bubble here. And then he hangs up the phone or whatever. And and of course, you know, 12 months later, the housing market crashes. I don't want to sound like that guy. (laughs) I, I, th- I think the, the, re- the reasons that you're laying out make a lot more sense than yeah, what saying I, what that there you, is. Yeah. What I'm telling you is that the fundamentals underlying the housing market, when I look at them and I analyze this stuff on a daily basis, are, are strong. They really are strong. Does that mean, again, a black swan risk could come in here and absolutely chop everything up? That could always happen. But it's not the base case and you got to plan. And then everybody's going to be yelling at you. Yeah. Well, the base case is, is things continue to go up in the housing market, uh, albeit at a much slower pace in 2021. That will not be repeated. Got it. Uh, well, that kind of sums up the our, our topics for, for the week. But we do have a f- couple of fan questions from uh, our community. And uh, so first off from Frederick Frederick 0220 um, he, he says, I use both Instagram and Snapchat. How is Snapchat out innovating Instagram? They seem awfully similar. Uh, again, yeah. this goes back to last week. Uh, you were saying that Snapchat is you kind of leading the game over Instagram. Um, so yeah. how do you want to respond to that? Yeah, well, that's, that, that's a great, great uh, comment. A great question. How is Snapchat out innovating Instagram? Well, one is on augmented reality. Okay. Uh, Snapchat's augmented reality filters are next gen. And Instagram's augmented reality filter filters are very poor. 
not very good at all. So they're really knocking the ballpark, knocking out a ballpark on augmented reality, which puts them in a much better position to make a successful plunge into the metaverse mm-hmm. uh, than Instagram. So that's the first way they're out innovating them. The second way they're out innovating them is through uh, original content. Remember Instagram had this IGTV that was a complete yep. pop and failure and now nobody yep. uses it at all. Uh, that was their attempt to create original content that people would watch outside of just like user generated content in your story or in your feed, right? Yeah. Um, they failed at that. Snap has really good original content sponsored by businesses that I watch very regularly. I don't know if uh, Frederick watches them too, but uh-huh. Snap's original content, uh, the little TV shows on Snap are very good. They're highly watched. Snap discovers a very cool tool. Uh, the third way they're out innovating them, which I believe is a very underrated aspect of Snap, is Snap Maps. Mm-hmm. Snap Maps is a fabulously cool thing. If you just want to see what's going on in your city in a certain area, mm-hmm. just go to the maps and like click that area and it'll pop up a bunch of stories in the past 24 hours of that area. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if I were like, let's say, I think Justin Bieber's doing a concert in San Diego on Friday. Okay. So, I'm not going. But if I wanted to go, or if yep. I wanted to know what was going on, yep. uh, that Friday night or that Saturday morning, I could click on where the Justin Bieber concert was in Snap Maps, click it, and then watch all the public stories from that event so I can feel like I actually saw what was going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's a really useful tool. I think Snap understands it's really useful. They're underutilizing it right now. They know that. I think they're going to do some big things with that, especially as it relates to the metaverse and augmented reality. I think there's some really cool integrations that could happen there. And then the fourth way they're out innovating them, and perhaps the most important way they're out innovating them, is on digital advertising innovation. Mm-hmm. So we saw in Meta's earnings report, Facebook's earnings report. I still it feels yeah, uh, you just say Facebook. <laughs> uh, Facebook's earnings report. They're really struggling to monetize Instagram stories, Instagram reels, right? Like okay. that's where all the engagement is, and they're really struggling to monetize it. That's why our poo rates are not as good as they have been. ARPU growth is not as good as it has been. But Snap is just crushing it on ads in stories, ads in reels, ads in feeds like that. And this video, digitally immersive, interactive, sometimes augmented reality enabled advertisements. Snap is crushing it there. And there's a lot of ad dollars that are coming through into Snap because they are delivering higher ROI on those visually immersive digital ad campaigns versus Instagram. So I think that is probably the most important way that Snap is out innovating Instagram at the current moment. And that's very, very important because it's all about the money. It's all about the dollars. What platform is delivering the highest ROI for an advertiser's money? Snap is doing that in this era with very relevant ads for consumers today. Uh, They just rolled out actually mid-feed ads, Mm -hmm. uh, which is like when you're mid-scrolling through your your stories, through your reels, they're boom, they're popping ads right in there. And again, uh, first off, I think that this really speaks to, again, the things that you're looking for when you're looking at a company. You're looking at not just what are the features that this product offers, because again, to Frederick's point, they do offer the same user experience from at a very base level. Uh, but you're looking at, you know, ROI, you're looking at earnings, you're looking at all these different factors before you even want to talk about anything. 
Uh, obviously, you don't want to talk about gentrification. So. <laughs> but but I think the for me personally, again, I'm in Frederick's camp where I see them as two very similar uh, applications. And I personally probably use Instagram a lot more on a daily basis than Snapchat. And my experience using going through stories is just an assault of advertisements through those stories. So uh, on Instagram uh, or Snapchat? On Instagram. Right. And that's 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 the flaw they're in. Snap has figured out a way to seamlessly. Okay. I see what you're saying. Uh, so it's an integration that's more organic, more natural versus just stopping the flow of your experience. Yeah. I mean, so I don't have an Instagram. Mm. Um, I use Instagram through my wife's account occasionally and yep. see what's going on there and check up on the features. But yeah, the, the ads are very unorganic, inorganic. They're very unfluid and they're not, it makes sense when Facebook said on their call that they're having trouble monetizing uh, those types of ads makes complete sense because they don't look clickable. They don't feel clickable. They're not really interactive in a way that the feed ads are interactive. Um, and snaps ads feel a lot different and their augmented reality ads are very, very strong. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're seeing really high uh, engagement. So I think that's a big place where they're really crushing, crushing Instagram at the current moment. Got it. Well, uh, our second, and this kind of piggybacks off the last question, uh, comes from sounds light. Uh, <laughs> the way it's written, uh, I think he means, uh, don't you, don't you honestly expect Facebook will return to glory soon? I think he means, uh, do you see Facebook returning to glory anytime soon? Yeah, no. No. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's tricky. They're going all in on the metaverse because they have to go all in on the They metaverse. have nothing. They're, they, the business model that they've had for however many years. Face, yeah, Facebook, the big blue app, is, is dead. We can just agree on that. Um, Instagram is cool, but anything that makes it cool was not unique to Instagram. They're piggybacking uh, off of what other people are doing. They piggybacked off Snap's innovation of short form content, uh, real stories. That was Snap. They just piggybacked off. And you have that. TikTok, which is kind of dominating that. And then you have TikTok, both. which is completely dominating that um, that form of content right now. Um, I do not believe that Facebook, I mean, when you say glory days, no, I believe their glory days are behind them. Is the company still going to be a very big legitimate solid company that grows yes uh is instagram going to still be a very important app in your phone yes is facebook probably not uh messenger great communication app whatsapp great communication app so there are definitely great assets here but i just think that for the time being until they really prove themselves in the metaverse the stock is probably dead money and i don't know if the company has what it takes to really dominate in the metaverse in the same way they dominate in social media. That doesn't mean they won't be a metaverse company, a successful metaverse company, but will they be as big in the metaverse as they are in social media? I would say no. My guess would be no. And considering that is my stipulation, mm -hmm. that makes Facebook stock pretty, it makes it a hold at current levels. It's mm -hmm. not a sell, it's yep. not a buy, but probably just going to bumble about do you see it evolving like i mean again like 10 more years down the line into something even completely radically different because 
you saw the signs of Facebook going turning going all in on the metaverse. You were, you know, listening to to the keynotes and you were hearing what the all the insights. Is it if this if Meta fails or doesn't even succeed at the level that I think that they want it to succeed in? Do you see uh, another shift in their business model happening, or do you see uh, it just kind of dying a slow death? No, they they will pivot. They if if they don't succeed in the metaverse, I mean they have the cash. To yeah, do that. there's fifty billion dollars in the balance sheet. They they mm. can do a lot of things here. Okay, um, and that's why they're going to be successful. They're whatever they do, they're going to be successful. There is enough resources, enough talent, mm-hmm. enough drive, dedication, experience there to make whatever Facebook's next venture is, Meta's next venture is successful. But that's not the question. The question but they're not going to reach that same level of... That same level of success. Gotcha. They dominated social media in a way that very few companies have dominated any industry. At Amazon, similar domination domination in e-commerce. Um, I would say uh, Amazon Web Services, similar domination in cloud. I would say Microsoft, similar domination in productivity software. Well, Facebook, Meta have that same domination in Metaverse, unlikely. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. without that level of domination in Metaverse, does the stock currently trading at, you know, what is it, a $600 billion plus dollar valuation, something like that, um, does the stock become a buy? Mm-hmm. Probably not. And mm-hmm. I want to see validation on the Metaverse front before really getting bullish on, on Facebook stock at these levels. Um, but yeah, I do think that the days of it being this digital advertising behemoth are are largely behind it um, and that its Metaverse efforts are going to be very difficult, um, not unaccomplishable, but very difficult. Well, as always, great insights. Uh, and again, our listeners, I think, get so much out of this. I know I do. Uh, any last words before we wrap this week? Uh, one word. Okay. SoFi. SoFi. Okay. You guys, you guys saw the stadium on uh, on Sunday at the Super Bowl. I didn't, uh, but yeah, okay. Everybody else did. Everybody else in this world did. Oh yeah, you didn't see the Super Bowl. I it was some bad food poisoning. <laughs> I was miserable. Um, yeah, SoFi. We'll talk about it more next week. SoFi. Just, SoFi. I'm Something to look forward to next week. For people, SoFi. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. Please, if you have any questions or comments for Luke, we'd love to hear them in our comments section and any feedback on things you'd like us to cover. Uh, we want to see if we can answer your question, any of your burning questions. Uh, until then, please don't forget to like and subscribe, and we will both see you next week.